Welcome to the Heart Centered Therapist Podcast, the podcast created for you, the therapist who leads with your heart and loves serving your clients. I'm Cindy Gozanski, your host. I know that being a heart centered therapist is immensely rewarding and powerful and intensely challenging and difficult. We're on this journey together. My mission is to help you continue loving your work as a therapist, surviving being a therapist, and feeling more connected as a therapist. Hello, and welcome back to the Heart Centered Therapist podcast. I'm Cindy Gozanski, and I'm so excited today about my guest. I am honored to bring you Amy Smitke. Amy is a dual licensed LISWS and LICDC who has worked in mental health for the past 13 years. She is the founder of Motivated Wellness Solutions and co-founder of TheraVault, her group practice. She is a field liaison and adjunct professor at The Ohio State University, and she serves as a coach and consultant to colleagues. Throughout her career, Amy has worked in various settings, including treatment facilities, community mental health, corrections, insurance companies, and private practice. Her current focus and direction is in clinical mental health supervision. Amy is passionate about helping the next generation of mental health professionals thrive and providing them with the guidance and tools necessary for success. And I am so glad to have Amy because I love clinical mental health supervision too. It's something I'm passionate about, and we are going to have such a great conversation today. Welcome. Well, thank you, Cindy. I'm so glad to be here and to talk about supervision because it's obviously something I'm very, very passionate about. And I don't think we talk enough about it in the field. We don't for lots of reasons <laughs> that we'll get into, including judgment and fear and so many supervision is so important. So, you know, I have a big interest in therapists, their, their growth, their identity, and especially being a heart-centered therapist. So I always like to ask my guests, what does being a heart-centered therapist mean to you? I think to me, being heart-centered means that I follow my passion and and it's okay for your passions to change and to, to figure that out. And through passion, I provide the best care. So if I'm not passionate about something, I don't show up for it wholeheartedly because it's not authentic to me. And so I think it's really important for you to find what's authentic and show up for it. And that's where the passion really lies. And that's how you're going to help people the best is through being passionate about what you do and how you do it. I, I love how you link the authenticity and the passion to that. And I imagine it's pretty similar for being a heart-centered therapist supervisor. Yes. And I think that's how I landed and really focusing on supervision kind of naturally. I accidentally became a supervisor of interns really early on in my career you know, coming on to positions where I was kind of afloat and kind of would just pick up any particular position or job that day. <laughs> I would switch a lot of hats and, you know, when people would be out on sabbaticals or FMLA, I would cover full time for whatever their position was. And so 
my second job in the field, I was already supervising interns, not intentionally, but I kind of just was like, oh, okay. And, and that was really kind of my first insight into what does that look like from the other side? And I would always kind of throughout my career, not intentionally for many years, take on interns or assisting with the onboarding of new supervisees and helping train, not supervisees, but clinicians too, train them on what I already have learned and building um, curriculums and programs and training manuals for small companies. Uh, and I, those were skill sets that I think really helped me land my clinical director job at a relatively young age. By 30, I was already a clinical director of a new company. And I really helped them. I helped them before they were ever open. So they were owned by two young gentlemen who are in recovery and wanted to start their own, you know, treatment facility. And I took a risk on them and they took a risk on me. <laughs> and I went from never having a formal supervisor position to being a clinical director and program development and, you know, onboarding new staff and training and doing supervision for them and therefore their clinical license, that training supervision, taking on lots of interns. And I really enjoyed the training component of it, not so much the admin component of it, but the training component of it and really seeing them thrive and grow as clinicians. And then when I reflect back, I had, for the most part, fantastic supervisors that I don't think at the time I truly appreciated. <laughs> I, I appreciated them, but not in the sense that I do now, right? Of going, wow, a lot of people have really poor supervisors and supervisory experiences. And I was really fortunate that early on I had fantastic supervisors. And that's a strong foundation for me. Absolutely. So I'm so curious about this. For you, what makes a supervisor fantastic? I'm like trying to put it into words, like safety is one of them, mm -hmm. you know, knowing there's been a number of occasions throughout the years where I have felt challenging situations for a variety of different reasons and knowing I had a supervisor who would not only listen, but wouldn't scold me, wouldn't judge me and would back me up a hundred percent and supporting me and what my next steps were in a non-punitive, difficult way. You know, it's scary to ask for help and it's scary in the field that we are in where the decisions we make <laughs> impacts other people's lives in very difficult, meaningful ways. And if we make mistakes, that can hurt somebody, right? Like we have a lot of risk that we are taking with somebody else's lives. We carry and a lot of responsibility. And especially as, as a younger, newer clinician, right? To have that sense of safety from your supervisor that you could bring anything and feel like that would be not judged and yeah. that you would get help. Yeah, and so that was like really foundational for me to like feel that sense of support um, and so later on in my career, when I had some not so comfortable supervisors, I struggled more. And I think it wasn't until I had bad supervisors in that context that I realized how really fortunate I was to have had such 
foundational supervisors as I could feel safe with. That for me, when I went to that more supervision type role, working with other people, it was really important for me to not do that for them. Like, because that's hard to feel like I can't go somewhere and ask somebody for help and not have it. You know what I mean? Like, that's a vulnerable position for us to be in. And so I think that's really important. Yes. And, you know, Amy, it is so vulnerable. And I think also in terms of our career, we're one of the fewer fields that has this clinical supervision as as like a foundation, regardless of where you are. Yes, it's it's required when you're a you know newly licensed and you know conditional associate getting your hours for licensure. But beyond that, it's 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 encouraged, it's it's part of our our system of learning and checks and balances and professional and personal growth that we seek supervision at every stage in our career, which I think is unusual compared to many other fields. I would agree with that, you know, and I say that a lot when I'm, you know, in the group that I run and when I'm working with other people and, you know, revamping the the workshop and course I'll get to talk about later, I know, but one of the things that I talk about is, you know, with my supervisees and my interns too, because I'm helping them form foundations of what, what is supervision and why it's not a one-stop situation, right? It's not, I get my hours and then I should never have to be supervised again. And it's, I think sometimes we look at supervision as a punishment or being micromanaged. And I think it's really important that we reframe the way that we view supervision. It's kind of like a parent-child relationship, right? Initially it's, you know, you might not have all your bearings. And so we have to be oversight a little bit more and give you feedback. But then as we, as you grow as a child, you allow more independence and them to learn a little bit with less and less oversight. Um, But then, and you're in that parent-child relationship, right? Where it's the person who's really kind of making the decisions, the other person gets some autonomy in that, of course. But then as we get older, we we're allowed to be friends with our parents, right? Like the relationship changes. I and with supervisees, it's similar, right? Not that we're necessarily their friends, but as they've grown and they're past that that training piece, now it's, I don't want them to feel like they have to come to me. I want others to feel like they can come to me and that we can consult, mm-hmm. right? Because supervision is, it's teaching, it's training, it's coaching, it's consulting, it's mentoring. It's so many components to it. And I want them to be, I want people to learn that that is a growth, like you said, it's a growth piece of the field. And later it looks a little bit different. It's more consultation rather than supervision per se. Yes. What a, a great way to articulate that. And there is like this developmental process for the therapist in their supervision, in their supervision journey. And to start where, you know, you need a little bit more instruction, almost like the parent-child relationship, but then later to be a friend, to be a peer, right? Like that's, that's so great that we could see our colleagues as peers and to find somebody that we feel safe with, that we can bring those concerns that we feel like, oh, I don't know if somebody else would judge me for this or for this, you know, this move I made in session or this intervention or not even knowing what to do next, right? That's a big one too. 
Yeah, absolutely. So those types of things and those types of circumstances I've definitely had, and I've been really fortunate. Like my first supervisor as an intern is one of my very good friends now, you know, and that's so it's really cool to be like, you know, to see my growth for her, but to just grow professionally. And it's like, Hey, like we're good friends, but also like, she's a trusted, confident and colleague of mine. My business partner is I worked with her as a peer at my first job out of grad school, you know, and so I have because I've built the those strong relationships really on professionally, even in graduate school, I still connect and have regular conversations with those individuals. And yes, we're friends now, but I know if I needed a consult, which sometimes I do, <laughs> I reach out and I ask, you know, and, and but I also consult the board. So it's not just a consultation with my peers. There are definitely circumstances. And, and I have a really good relationship with our state board. Like I was saying, as we were chatting a little bit earlier, our, our board versus some other boards that may not be as responsive and helpful that some people may or may not find, even and though. Shout, shout out your state that has such a good. Ohio. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so in Ohio, yes, I, I hear people have some frustrations and stuff, and, and I don't think that they're perfect by any means, but I've been really, really fortunate that I've over the years, because I think I've asked a lot of questions because I think a lot of people have fears of the board and they're not there to just be punishment. They're there to be support and to teach us and to help us grow and learn what we don't have that kind of perception of them. We see them as more like the law and that we see them in a negative light rather than a positive light. And is it, you know, in my group, I was really lucky that the executive director and an investigator took two hours of their day one time and did a live Q and A with my group. That is amazing. You know, they're so helpful. And anytime I reach out and I'm usually reach out to the executive director, I ask him questions and he gets back to me usually within 48 hours. And he's super, super helpful and responsive. And that has really helped me one feel a little more confident. Like sometimes I'm like, am I, am I thinking about this the right way? And then I get some, you know, feedback and validation in that, but it's just been really helpful in the field to form those healthy relationships so that when I need consult, and I think as supervisors, sometimes we have to remember, we don't have all the answers and that's okay, is I ask. I ask my coworkers, I ask my colleagues, previous supervisors, long-term people in the field. I reach out to the board and ask because I don't, I know I don't know all the answers and that's okay. And I learn and I think through being transparent with that to my supervisees, of, you know what? I don't know the answer. Let me find out. Such it helps them know that they don't need to know everything too. Oh, yes. And, and it's really great modeling to them of that, you know, we don't know all the answers and we have resources. It's amazing that your board is so responsive. Unfortunately, not all are like that. Um, so that's, that's a really perhaps unusual situation, but it's great. And to, you know, to not feel that it's it's punitive, but actually, if you had an ethical question, you could go to the board licensing questions. Most of us are scared to approach our boards because we see them as like, you know, drop, drop the law on us. Yeah, which is unfortunate. But and I get it like I do, but I hope that we can grow. And, and, and I know that's hard because some states, they just have less funding and less resources and less staffing. And 
Um, I wanted to go back to something you said, Amy, that was so important too, that even when you were in grad school, still in grad school, you started forming connections with your supervisor, with other colleagues and networking, and that those connections still hold. They're still important and valuable. And I think for our listeners, especially students or new therapists, it, it can't be underscored enough because we work in a lot of isolation that when we start making these connections, like they're gold. And especially, you know, if you feel you're in a safe, you know, supportive relationship with that person, find ways to maintain that network and connection with them. And, and I think your example is amazing from, from your jobs to all of, all of the ways that they've stayed in your life. Yeah, absolutely. And that's another thing I, I talk a lot about with is like networking, and re it's relationships, right? We are in the field of relationships. And it's not just about the relationships with our clients, like it is the relationships with everyone we come into contact with. And, you know, working hard to never burn bridges. I know that's not always possible and not always within our control. But I think it's important that like to use to your what you said, like it's how do you and, and now we have way more ability to stay connected with people than we did back then, which is hard because like that was not that long ago. And we didn't have technology like we have today with all the social media platforms and, and stuff. I mean, they were coming, but they weren't quite there yet. There really should be less reason that we can't stay connected with people if you're just getting started of building those connections. But I think marketing and networking are so undervalued, I think, in our field. And it's not just about job opportunity, which does play a role. There's a reason I got into OSU, which is really hard to get into, by the way, to teach, because they don't post your jobs. You have to know somebody to ask somebody to get an interview. Okay, I was wondering okay. about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and that was building relationships. You know, I worked, there was a liaison I worked with before I started doing liaison work with social work students at OSU. I'd worked with her for several years and her and I worked so well together that she would request to work with my agency every year because she was like, I know what to expect. I know what my interns are getting when they're working with you, the communication with you. Like I have all those expectations and I can feel a little less stressed about what's happening with them when I work with you. And eventually I was like, so how do you do what you do? Like, because <laughs> I never see those jobs posted. And that's been so valuable throughout the years to ask people or hey, what do you think about this or have a question about this or I have so many people that reach out because I do so much mentoring and supervision and coaching that I, I have people that are like hey I have someone asking what do should they go into counseling or social work do you mind talking to them and giving them some insight and yeah, sure. I'll hop on a call with them and, and answer their questions. And I don't mind. I think that's also, I don't want to gatekeep information. I think it's important that people know what, how, what information they need to make the choices that are going to be better for them. And so many people don't want to help. And I don't, which is so odd to me in the field that we work in. And, and that's why I try to show up in other Facebook groups. And if people are asking questions, I feel like I have a a good understanding of or good resources for, I share. Yes. You know, I constantly like, hey, feel free to message me if you have questions and I will definitely share what I can with you about 
whatever that is, right? And and I have so many people who reach out and are so appreciative that somebody was willing to answer their question rather than give their opinion or their thoughts that may not always be helpful. There's plenty so, of that already. I'm there's sure. plenty of that. Um, this is what I what I I really admire about you, Amy, is that you're you're you share. You just said I share, I help, and and I think yes, that's what we do as therapists. But it's also this little bit different way that we support and serve as supervisors, right? We're we're always in that role, and we take it very seriously. I do because you know I I see even locally like people posting questions and doing things that I'm like, and so I'll give feedback on, you know, (laughs) do what you will. Here's my thoughts or here. Maybe you should think about asking the board directly that question because you're getting some mixed information. And, you know, I always preface it with, this is my own experience. This is my conversations with the board. And here's my concern. If you choose a particular path, without having all the information. And again, this is also really important for the graduate students who are, you know, excited to get their job or to go out on their own, but they may not know. And that's why it's really important to have a good supervisor who's aware of the state-specific rules, who who wants the best for their supervisee to help them, right? Even, yeah. even upon graduation, post-graduation. Um, so, so we've sort of, already really talked about the importance of the strong supervision experience in grad school. Like that goes without saying. Why do you think it's so hard in general for therapists to find supervisors? Like once they graduate, you know, like I see posts in our our local thing, you know, somebody who is conditionally or associate licensed and they're looking for a supervisor. Why is it so hard? Trying to speak as general as possible. Obviously, I think there's some differences from state to state and license to license. So, so I think some states, there is that allotment. Any profession as qualified supervisor can provide your hours. Other states have that. Some states have so few of a particular designation that that makes it difficult. I know some states have a directory that you can go into their state website and you can look up supervisors and reach out to them but most states does not appear to have that. Uh, I think a lot of people don't understand who is technically allowed to supervise and what those qualifications look like, because that also looks very different from state to state. Like, so years of being in practice or having certain CEUs and in supervision. Yeah. So like there's, I think there's a lot of challenges amongst the states and what does that even look like? Who who qualifies? So I think that one is a huge barrier. Then I think a lot of people get into a job and it's, I'm an LPC, but the only supervisors here are LSWs or vice versa, or they're not even independently licensed that are in supervisory roles because that's not necessarily a requirement. You might have to have someone who's independent to sign off on billing documentation, but that doesn't mean they're qualified to be a supervisor. Of course. And so I think a lot of times we don't have people in practice that are the qualifying for the supervisors. So I think that's one. And then they don't know where else to find because there isn't any global, easy access. Hey, here's where I can find a supervisor. 
Right. We don't really have yeah. a clearinghouse for that. You know? No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think some, some clinicians get really concerned about the responsibility, the liability, the risk to their yeah. license should they take on a supervisee. Maybe you could talk to, about that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Because it is. So there's differences. There's one, there's a there's clinical supervision and there's training supervision. And they're technically two separate things. And I think there's some confusion around that too. So if you're doing clinical supervision, you're essentially taking the responsibility or at least primarily the responsibility of the practicing work that someone underneath you that you are signing off on their, their work, you're taking on that liability because you're saying, I am approving whatever they're doing, right? So I need to be paying attention to what they're doing. If you're a training supervisor, there is the liability, of course, but it is reduced, right? So if you're not, you can do both. You can be a training and a clinical supervisor. So your training supervisor has to have whatever your state and professional license designation requirement is of, can I supervise other people to be an independent, clinically licensed, that again, that verbiage is different from state to state, clinically licensed person. And, you know, per that state, whatever those are. So when I do that for my supervisees, that I am training them specifically for their license. I'm not necessarily, obviously secondarily, I am. I'm professionally developing them anyways. That doesn't mean I'm signing off on their paperwork. That doesn't mean I'm in charge of a responsible for their day-to-day work. That's what their t- clinical supervisor's responsibility really is. Now, as a training supervisor, if I'm also signing off on documentation and I'm also their clinical supervisor, that comes with additional liability. So, so it kind of varies on what role that you play with them determines how much liability you have for them, of course. Of course, I always recommend checking with your liability insurance in terms of are you covered? What would that look like? Do you have to have a different policy amount, like an aggregate amount if you're supervising? And that can change potentially from profession to profession, because obviously as social workers, we have certain companies that will work with us for professional license, and there's different ones that work with other professions. So the liability kind of looks a little bit different. Now, I know, obviously, there's some liability I, don't, I wouldn't even call it liability so much because once I sign off on somebody's hours, I've submitted that to the board. I do have to recommend them. Now, what the board does with that is their own, but I'm not responsible in that in terms of anything's going to come back on me if I approve them to get their license. Exactly. I think that's so important. Sometimes people don't realize that, yeah. you know, you've signed off on their hours, you recommend them. Yeah. Now, I mean, personally go, I missed something like that feels awful. But from on a paper standpoint, I'm not liable for that. They're not liable for themselves. And ultimately, they always are liable for themselves. But there is some some liability that comes on us both as a clinical supervisor and a training supervisor. So I think a lot of people want to do more even training supervision like you and I do. And there is that fear of, well, one, I don't know where to start, where it's my liability. And really our liability, if they have a clinical supervisor, is is less. Because mm-hmm. our, our responsibility is to professionally develop them. Yeah, those are really, really good points. Yeah. And I think along those lines, 
you know, of course it's a lot of work as you're saying, right? We're either signing off on documentation or we're, you know, spending at least an hour in individual supervision. Maybe we're doing group supervision as well. Like it's, it's a lot of in the chair work, but if you enjoy it and you're passionate about the development of therapists in the field, it's great. It can be so rewarding. What would you say are some like important skills we've sort of talked already about like non-judgment and um, really creating a safe place, but what are some important skills that supervisors have? I think critically thinking and for lack of a better term, reading your audience, right? Like I know, you know, I primarily do group supervision, but I also know that some of my supervisees are coming in really green and really fresh. And some of my supervisees are coming in really seasoned. You know, I have a few supervisees who've been in the field for a really long time, longer than I have. And they're coming in because they went back later and got a master's degree and are just now trying to do their, their hours, which is really unfortunate because to be fair, they're more skilled than I am. But what's it like doing supervision with them? So far, it's been really great. And I think part of that's because of the way I approach supervision personally. I approach supervision very collaboratively. And I don't come in with, this is the agenda and I know everything. And here's just a, I'm just training you on X and I'm the only person who has input because I don't believe that. And that's just not how I work because I feel even my interns, when they're coming in and they sit and train like group supervisions with my group practice, ask questions. I want your thoughts and feedback too, because you're seeing it with a fresh pair of eyes. I'm seeing it with sometimes so seasoned that I don't see the little stuff that could be really important and integral in this case. Yes. And those eyes and being so close to their, their recent studies and, you know, that new approach, it's so great. Yeah. And so I, I approach supervision very similarly Mm -hmm. in that I always tell them when I'm, you know, kind of onboarding, so to speak, a new supervisee, Hey, I'm very collaborative. I ask for everybody's thoughts and feedback. I you're, you all have different experiences. You have different resources. I, again, I cannot possibly know it all. And I learn from them just as much as they learn from me. And so when I have some of these seasoned clinicians, I've never gotten with the ones I've worked with <laughs> kickback or, you know, butting heads of any kind, because there isn't that authoritarian type. Ex- I'm not authoritative in that sense. Right. Um, and you set yourself up that way. You you have yeah. this welcoming, collaborative stance, and um, clearly that probably goes back to your work in treatment facilities and some probably. some MI work. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, right. I'm very MI focused. So yeah. yeah, and so I think that really helps people one create a safe space for people. They feel empowered that they're allowed to have thoughts and feelings. And I think again because I do that, I've had people where I've had I've brought ethical cases and for like, um, you know, sample ones, like, let's talk about this. What would that look like where it's brought up stuff that later, maybe they didn't necessarily feel good in a group to bring it up, but they've had like, Hey, I had this actually occur, or I'm currently kind of dealing with something like that. Can we talk more about that on a one-to-one basis? And that always makes people really good to feel that they feel safe enough to have that conversation with me. They may not necessarily feel safe in a group and that's totally fine. That's different. But again, I think that that collaborative approach with, hey, we're all new, we're all learning. And there's definitely, you know, like I said, there's times where I'm like, I don't, 
I'm actually not sure, but I'm really glad that I had so-and-so on supervision today because they have experience with that or they've worked with that before and they can bring their expertise to the table to share it with everybody else. And I think that's, those are skills, I guess, as a supervisor is to be able to not, I think leadership is confusing, right? Mm -hmm. We think of leadership as I'm on top and everybody is below me. And it's not really like that, at least in my opinion and my experience. My my perception is I'm just as part of the, the chain, so to speak, of how things go through. And sometimes it's important that I'm at the back of the chain. Sometimes it's important that I'm at the beginning. And sometimes it's important that I'm in the middle to help facilitate that interaction and that learning process. Mm, yes. And, you know, it's it's really hard to lead with compassion, right? If if you're looking at that top-down model, it's just so hard. And I think we we really try to do that, to lead with compassion and to change that view of the expert role as therapists, both in our therapeutic work and then also in our supervisory work. Sure, like you said, that the parent example is actually kind of good because that's like experience, right? We can lead from experience and with compassion, but not necessarily from that expert role. And, and I love how you also mentioned resourcing being so important as another skill or, yeah, I guess skill that a therapist uh, who supervises would have to be very resourced or be able to access those resources or direct the supervisee to check out those resources. And one of the things that I do with all my supervisees, because I have right now, I have about 20 supervisees or so yeah. 20 yeah <laughs> so plus your clients plus your group practice I, I do a little bit a lot so so I have a lot and I try to stay really organized so I can do that with my documentation and, and all those things but what's nice is one I have people from so many different backgrounds which is fantastic it, it has challenges at times but for the most part I think that that helps my group um, or my groups, but I create like in my, you know, my Google workspace, I have an email list that's for my supervisees. Mm -hmm. And so anytime I have a resource that one group shares, Hey, this is a great route. I share all of my supervisees. Oh, I and love so, doing that or, too. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and so, or I, in Facebook groups, or I'm on, you know, a million email lists from, you know, really impactful people in this field and they share stuff. And I'm like, Hey, here's this, or here's a new training. And I feel like it's important again to share. <laughs> and so I'm always like, it doesn't hurt me to share right. anything. And it only helps people. So why not? Oh, your, your energy and your passion is so great. I can just imagine our listeners wanting to have you as their supervisor. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yes, absolutely. What about the, the role of the supervisee? What would you say the role of the supervisee is? And I know it could it could be different. Yeah. Not not talking about like you know documentation and stuff in terms of like a new student or a clinician, but just more generically speaking. I think the role of a supervisee isn't. I think it has some commonalities with a supervisor, right? You have to show up with accountability and responsibility to document, do all your paperwork, all that stuff that we have to do at every particular role that we 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 have in this field. But I think it's responsible for them to show up with knowing what their goals are for themselves, right? I think that's first and foremost. I need to know what I want out of supervision and out of my my field. And it's okay if that changes. 
and it probably will <laughs> um, as you go. And I know mine's change a ton. Yeah, come to yeah. session prepared. Know what your questions are, what your goals yeah. are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so coming prepared, being accountable to that, engaging, I think that's really important. If you don't engage and you just observe, you're you're missing a huge piece of what is available to you, right? So as a supervisor, part of my role is to try to engage supervisees, but it's also on the supervisee to engage and to figure out what does that look like, whether that's asking questions or giving feedback, preferably both, my ideally, because it's hard for as a supervisor to give you feedback and help you professionally develop if I can't see how you think, how you process, what your questions are. You know, it's kind of one of those, there are no stupid questions. I have supervisees ask stuff all the time. They're like, I know this is probably stupid, but blah. I'm like, no, like, <laughs> you're probably not the only one asking this question. And, you know, I have a, I'll, I'll give a little blurb and I think this is hard. Like I've grown so much as a person since high school. I, in high school, I was super quiet and I'm definitely more of an introvert, but I was really quiet. I hate talking in class. Like I was not that person. Like I remember having to do like a monologue for my theater class in class and I cried after. Okay. So like, I did not like being in front of people in any capacity and, and I grew definitely in college and since then, but I remember my first semester in my undergrad, I was fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you want to view it, I was assigned to, I was taking a middle history class as one of my electives. I didn't know in my, at my academic advisor was not great at saying, oh, by the way, this is primarily a junior senior class. And so with one of the most challenging like he's a hard grader, he's hard on you, professors on the whole campus. I bombed the midterm because I was so anxious that I got it all mixed up in my head. And if you had below a certain grade on your midterm, you had to go see him in class, like see him in his office. And I remember crying because I was like, I'm the first person in my family to go to college. I was like, I'm going to fail. Like, I'm not going to make it. It didn't do well with constructive feedback. And I was terrified and never participated in class. And I went in, of course I cried, so, so nervous. And, and he, bless his heart, he was like, you know, I can tell you know the answers in class. Like mm -hmm. I can tell based on how you wrote, because it was an essay style exam. You knew the answer, but you got so anxious, you flipped it up, like you messed it up, but you know the answers. And so his challenge to me was, and it was pivotal for me, was every class, you either have to ask a question or answer question. If by the middle of class you have not, I call on you for something. So you get to choose, but I need you to participate and I need you to to like grow in your confidence that you do know what you're doing. And that was huge for me. And I think it's, I take that, I share that with my supervisees, with my students. Like it's so important that even though you're nervous and there's probably sometimes you're going to ask questions that maybe everyone should-ish know, but not really, or they seem so common sense that you feel like you should know, just that's development, just being able to push yourself to ask the question. And and what a, what a beautiful real life vignette that was so pivotal for you in your yeah. development journey. And, and also it, it has so much revel, relevance 
to your work now and to being a supervisor and to having an attitude of, like you said, that professor softened a little toward you, but with a way that you would continue to grow. Yeah. And so I, I think that's really important for supervisees to know. And that's, again, going back to what you said earlier, is kind of leading by example of, I don't always know the answers either. And that's okay. <laughs> I'll find them out and help you out. And I think that helps them know that that's okay to not know the answer. And so they can ask and, and get feedback. And so I think their role is to be active in their supervision, yeah. to take part in it. Right. I think when supervisees ask me a question and I say, oh, good question. They know, right? I don't know the answer either. We're going to figure this out together. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, Yeah. So I think also we we didn't really touch on it as much with the questions, but I, I have seen that it's really important for supervisees at any level and for ourselves as supervisors to get engaged in reflection, in reflection of, you know, what we're doing, our work in, in terms also of our self of therapist issues, things like that. I think that can be very key. hundred percent. I've found with some of my colleagues, we've formed a supervision of supervision group, and that's been really helpful. I don't think a lot of people know that there's actually a thing like called Mm -hmm. supervision, supervision, right? Yeah. Yeah, actually, in my new workshop, I have a a small component that talks about the supervision of supervisors and forming those types of groups because we, to your, you you said this much earlier, but it was about the isolation of this field, right? And and that comes in a lot of different forms. And I think it's really important for us, one, to, to find ways that we connect with other people in the field just in general but also connect in those types of groups where, yeah, I don't technically have to be supervised anymore, right? Like my license says I can do kind of what I want in a sense, right? But it is in my best interest, both professionally and personally, to continue to have supervision of some kind with others who are making those types of decisions in the field and are helping others grow. And because that comes with its own isolation and its own challenges. And I I think the first time I really experienced the isolation of a supervisor was as a clinical director. You know, it was hard to have a lot of that weight in those decisions that sometimes I had to execute that were not my my decisions to make. Um, But I, I took ownership of them, even if they weren't mine to really take ownership of. And it was really isolating when I was having rough days and I was not managing well emotionally and not having the support that I would have liked in those types of situations. And I think a lot of times when we have high caseloads and there's high burnout, we don't connect with others. If we're supervisors, we might be isolated in our jobs as to who we can appropriately and professionally have conversations with about the things that we're struggling with. And those types of groups that you've formed are really imperative for us to to continue to be effective and do our own self-care as that that's part of our own self-care, right? Yeah, so <laughs> is exactly. to do this. Just thinking of that, right? Yeah. So it's it's so twofold, right? Because there are so many clinicians who are practicing as supervisors as well. And then they have the extra layer of isolation in their supervisory role, right? Even if, you know, you're the clinical director and like you said, making all of the decisions or you don't have a you know, a group practice bestie that you can 
talk to about the supervision that you're doing, but you went right into what my next question was around self-care and the role of supervision and self-care. I think there's so many components too, but I think obviously that is a big one and which is the connection and the networking of that. I think it's really important for us to try as best we can to practice what we preach, right? We tell a lot of, or at least I do. I can't, I guess I can't speak for everyone. I, I hope that as supervisors, we are encouraging. And if possible, depending on the role that we have as a supervisor, we allow and provide the space necessary for our supervisees to have their own self-care. And we as then should also be practicing. I ask often in my supervision, what are you guys doing? What have you been, what have you done in the last week? And so many of them are like, okay, what have you done? Right. Oh, I know. And so they yeah. put it back on me, which is good. Right. Because I Don't want them to hold me accountable. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so it's good because it holds me accountable, you know, cause I can, because I have a lot of irons in the fire and I just want to go, go, go. I can have a difficult time kind of stepping back. And I know that about myself. And so I try to be mindful of that. And So I think it's important for us to practice what we're probably preaching to our supervisees for ourselves. I think boundaries are huge. Mm -hmm. Uh, I talk a lot about boundaries and supervision because those, when I look at like, I don't know what it is like for like Maine or other states, but I think quarterly, like we get an email from the board that says, here's all the people that had violations and here's the reasons why. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, our our state does. Oh, well, we ours do. And um, I mean, you can obviously always look up anyone, but they kind of like right. put them on, on blast in that, in that sense. And I would say at least eight times out of 10, it comes down to a boundary issue that has caused a violation. And so I talk a lot about that, but I think that's important for us as supervisors. And that can go back to that question you had about like our role or our liability a little bit as a supervisor. So that might vary in having boundaries and I'm not always available to them. I'm not going to like be like on the dime. I need to, you know, take steps back for myself and say, Hey, here's my office hours. Obviously if there's an emergency, but for most of them, I'm a training supervisor. So they really should be calling their clinical supervisor in the case of an emergency, but really having those boundaries on my own time, on the things I choose to take onto my plate, on the relationship I have with my supervisees, right? Again, right now, they're not my friend yet, right? They're, so I need to make sure that I kind of keep that distance from them, which is good for me and good for them, right? To not, to teach them how to have appropriate boundaries. And that I think helps me maintain kind of that self-care because I'm like, okay, well, that's something you actually have to talk to your supervisor about or, you know, or we can talk about that in, in training supervision if we're doing some case consultation. So I think boundaries is a big one, practicing what we preach, you know, being flexible with ourselves. So important. Yeah. So, yeah, because there's some days where I'm like, you know what, uh, what I need is to get a project done. And that will actually relieve my anxiety later because I've completed something. And then other days it's, I'm, just done for the day. Like, and I don't want to do anything else. And that's okay. That's okay. You know, as, as, as a profession, we need to help each other, right. Help our, our fellow therapists, right. Have these boundaries, practice what we preach and be okay with those things. Like you just said, sometimes we're just, we're out of energy. It's okay. Right. Yeah. 
And back to your point, support, I think is huge. Support and community. And uh, yeah. And, and, you know, we, we met through my Facebook group, the Heart Center Therapist Community. And then Amy, you shared with me that you have a Facebook group. And so I want to, I want to hear all about the things you offer, because I know my listeners after hearing this are going to be so interested in some of your um, resources and Amy has an amazing website and, and all of that. So um, share a little about how people can find you. Yeah. So I want to definitely talk about since a lot of your listeners, at least maybe this particular episode is really interested in supervision and some capacity. My Facebook group, I have about 1500 people in there now, and it is continually growing. And I I hope as it grows, it continues to be able to help more people because it will reach more people. But I created it because I was seeing so many people in groups looking for these resources that were just, there was no one place for them to find it. And, And so I created the Behavioral Health Internship Supervision and Licensing Group specifically for mental health professionals. So, you know, you do have to be a social worker, a MFT, a, you know, counselor, mental health professional of some kind to be um, a, a allowed into the group. But um, it is specifically around helping interns find placements and placements find interns, helping supervisors find supervisees and supervisees finding supervisors. And then last, just being able to ask licensing specific questions from the group and getting directed feedback when it can get lost when you ask those questions in some of these other really large groups that are really kind of more general groups. And so I did that and I have, I have done some lives, I've done interviews on there. I have some free resources. So spreadsheets for, you know, three-year tracking spreadsheet that helps you automatically, uh, calculate your hours. It's so important. <laughs> Everyone's always asking me that. Where can I get a supervision yeah. hours tracker? Well, Amy has one. You can get it yeah. on her website. Yes, I can get it. It's on the website, but it's also in my group. You know, I keep, you know, I post pretty regularly. Hey, if you're looking for this, you can post here. Someone can comment. Um, but then I update the spreadsheets usually every couple of months with anyone that's new that's offering supervision at a particular state. So you can go by your license and by the state and find somebody who's offering it. Um, And that can really help you find someone maybe more quickly. Um, But I also in there, I have internship cover letters and templates. So if you're emailing people, because what I found was um, unlike OSU, (laughs) a lot of state, a lot of schools don't help you find internships. Um, And so that's been a really big challenge. And so people are a lot of times are cold emailing places. And so I have cover letters for that. I have a huge list of social work job ideas. I have interviewing questions for supervisees. I have, I have supervising trackers for supervisors. I got, you know, template license covers. I have, you know, other different types of templates and I'm always trying to come up with more as people ask for, for resources to offer in there. I post lots of questions like to get you thinking about different ways that you engage supervision or your internship to try to make the most of that experience. So I try to be really engaging in the group as much as possible. And I try to answer all your questions if I can answer it because sometimes it's state specific and I wouldn't be able to answer that question for you. But um, I do try to be very engaging in that. And then I have my Motivated Wellness Solutions website where um, you can find a lot of the digital products that I have uh, created for supervisors and supervisees. So one, I've officially created, I just haven't 
Um, I have, I'm waiting for the last, the editing component. I just created my first ebook, which is 102 ethical case scenarios with prompted questions for supervision to have good ethical discussions. I have launched the, they are on my uh, website to purchase. They're my empowering supervision cards. So they're kind of like flashcards that you can have in supervision. They have a variety of different types of prompts. Some of them are general. Some of them are kind of specific to medical social work, school social work. So there's some different ones in there of what are, if this happens, what would you do? Or what would, how would you process through that, that circumstance? Um, I'm getting ready to make an app out of that. So you can just have it at your fingertips to like randomly select the question and then have those conversations and, and supervision. So if you're looking for, um, Hey, you know what, we have five minutes at the end, 10 minutes, you know, let's fill it with something. So those are some really great ways that you can, you know, have some processing in your group. I have currently the free version and the initial version of a curriculum guide. So it's got uh, 12 different uh, topics that you can use in supervision to um, around different things like ethical case scenarios. There's some on, um, I'm trying to remember what's in the free one, uh, but it says, uh, you know, here, let's talk about this topic or this educational component. And some of them have role-playing exercises that are created for you, other prompting questions, it's got some insight in the beginning of it of how might you structure supervision and here's some important components to that. So that's the free one. I am creating a much more comprehensive one that would be for purchase. And that one I'm trying to do about 150 sessions. So you would have several years worth of content of supervision. So you could just literally the goal is like kind of pick it up and go in and just run a supervision session on it. So that is something I'm working on. And I have a lot of it done in the back. It's just really transposing it into um, a very nice format for it that that's easy to use. And then I have several guides for supervisees that help you make the most out of supervision. So making sure, hey, you should be having these questions. You should be tracking this. You should be doing this. So there's some of those. And then I just relaunched last Thursday my workshop. So I re-recorded re it. So it's about three and a half hours worth of uh, content. And there's nine modules and it includes um, almost 30 different worksheets, templates in it. And, um, but it goes through what is supervision? What is the difference between some of the things that we talked about today? Um, how do you market yourself? How do you structure supervision? Understanding how to choose your ideal supervisee and understanding who you are in your leadership style. So there's some different things that I walk you through different worksheets. So that when you go to whether you're wanting to just now start supervision or if you've been in super of supervisor role for a while, I think there's some valuable things to that. And then how do you apply this in real world? And that includes a, a sample copy of my my conversation starters. It includes a lot of my paid templates that are already on my website. Um, so you can find all of those on my website. Um, obviously, you can find my supervision there. I do what I call supervision retreats right now. Um, they're just for Ohio supervisees, but some of them sometimes are just looking for extra hours. And so I do um, four times a year, I do kind of a four hour bulk supervision and it has a very specific topic in mind. And it's very, it's a very structured supervision um, component of 
you know, here's ethics and here's all the things that we need to know about ethics and how do we process ethical questions. So that's it for now. Uh, but I am and I've set myself a date. <laughs> I am launching my membership in July. So oh. it's specifically for supervisors. Um, and eventually I, I'm working this last kink out. It will include CEUs and the cost supervision specific CEUs, because I know that's really hard sometimes to find those to begin with, but just quality ones. But in it is going to be a consultation component where we have peer consultation, lots of trainings and, and support for supervisors very specifically in that membership. So I do have that coming soon. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, yeah. So I think that covered most of it. (laughs) Oh my goodness. You, you just have a wealth of resources and so much energy and, and so much wisdom to share with everyone. Um, I just, I really want to thank you, Amy, for, for coming on the podcast today. And especially even more than that, for what you're doing to help new therapists and also experienced therapists continue to, to grow and thrive and to continue love being therapists. Like that's such a crucial part of supervision that we help people want to stay in this field and love what they do and to have that that great collaborative relationship of, of a supervisor who really gets it. So I just really acknowledge the amazing work you're doing and thank you so much for coming today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And I, I could literally talk about supervision <laughs> for hours. Um, and so so it's been a really, it's been a joy to be here and t- to share my passion with other people. And hopefully it inspires somebody else to be a supervisor that maybe they didn't think they could and they have skill sets, but, you know, we're like, oh, I haven't done it before. And so hopefully I can inspire somebody else to be a supervisor to help you know, we're really the next, we're helping the next generation of our field. Uh, And so I think it's important that we, like you said, we share the compassion and we share the the love and the energy for the field through our supervision. Absolutely. So well said and such important, meaningful work. We will link to all of your resources in the show notes and everybody check out Amy's website. Motivated Wellness Solutions, and we will see you in the Facebook group in both of them. So, okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, I invite you to subscribe and leave a rating or review. It really helps other people find this podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the links and resources mentioned. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.